0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and
1: imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist.
0: Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven It's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind we're not saying that planet earth is coming to for an man. end we're saying that planet earth is about to be refurbished spaded under and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes.
1: 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act.
0: Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can
1: hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed. The bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish.
0: In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we uh, we m- may not be alone.
1: This is the Garden of garden of doom this week we have a very special guest uh this is joseph Borelli. he is retired chief of detectives for new york city's police department uh you may have heard about him from some very high profile cases um but we're going to talk about his sort of his life in policing and obviously we'll touch on the, uh, some of those highlights and uh talk uh, as the conversation takes us. So welcome in, uh, uh, Chief Borelli. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for calling. Uh, thank you for calling. And before anything else, I want to say happy birthday, because I, I know you just celebrated a, a big birthday a couple days ago.
0: Yeah, a very big birthday, 90 years
1: old. Wow. Well, I, I hear that at 90, you can you can still take out the average man. So, um, so let's start...
0: Yeah, it, uh, I've slowed down quite a bit. Okay. A
1: bit. Well, some of us start off slow, but <laughs> that's, that's okay. Um, uh, so let let's start off. Uh, you know, serve in the beginning. Let's let's take you to uh, as a young man. What what got you interested in policing?
0: Well, you know, usually people have these profound reasons. Mine was basically to uh, follow my father's instructions and he always had a saying he would say learn a trade and never use it and that's basically what i did i was a bricklayer used to in the construction business and then i uh, joined the police department because I, I wanted a little better employment record and not being laid off in this winter time or it snowed so uh, a lot of the people join with these ideas of service, and, and all. mine was more of a building a better life for myself.
1: Okay. And did you go to the academy, or did you st- uh, start as a patrolman?
0: I, Yeah, I, uh, the police academy in those days was uh, two separate buildings. One was an old public school where the uh, administrative, and then we used a... They used a the, uh, old uh, National Guard armory in Brooklyn uh, where the physical part took place. So, uh, so that's where I was. And during the academy, I was fortunate enough to, uh, they used to give out these off-duty weapons, you know, a revolver. If you won like the, uh, the administrative part, the academics, uh, the physical school, and the skill of shooting a weapon so i won none of those that i win but i won the overall weapon i was the uh i wasn't the best in the academics but on average i had the best average of all and that i was awarded a gun in my rookie days
1: and, and then uh, following i'm sorry go ahead I
0: graduated, no i graduated academy and was sent to harlem in those days uh, when you finished the academy, you always went to either Harlem or Beppert's Side. Those were usually, in those days, were considered high-crime areas, and that's where you started to learn the business of being a policeman.
1: And what years and, are we talking about?
0: Well, in 57, 58, 59, uh, and then in 1959, They created a new uh, unit called the Tactical Patrol Force. Uh, It was a group of 75 with uh, less than two years on the police force, over six feet tall, and there were 75 of us. And what they would do is wherever there was uh, some incident that needed additional police, we were sent. Uh, You know, usually high crime areas if they were experiencing robberies or li of that uh, the son of5 was we made quite a quite an impression when because uh, we were all pretty tall, all young, and that that was one good unit that I was
1: put in so sort of like the uh, the big guy small army at the you know that was deployed all at once
0: but yeah like a troubleshooting outfit you know wherever there was a problem, we went in and we tried to make things better.
1: And how did you go from patrol to detective and and around how long a period of time was that? And, you know, just generally, how was, how was, how does that process unfold or how did it for you anyway?
0: Well, in the police department, you can take civil service tests up to the rank of captain. And then from captain on you, uh, it's by the appointment of the police commissioner. So, uh, I took the sergeant, the lieutenants, and the captain's staff and passed. I was a captain and then you get promoted. So eventually I got promoted to deputy inspector, inspector, deputy chief, assistant chief, and then chief of detectives. And that was a period from 1957 to my last promotion chief of detectives, which was 1989
1: so in, 19, that, in 1989
0: you became a slacker huh yeah um the, uh, go what's ahead
1: that? i'm sorry go ahead
0: no i was gonna say uh, I, I was part of another unit that was first created and that was called the citywide anti-crime unit uh, there was another unit to fight we were basically put together as a uh, for the increase in rob- a tremendous amount of robberies and weapons and we were like a plainclothes unit. I was a lieutenant at the time. And we did the interviewing of fellas and we created the uh, citywide anti-crime. And then uh, that was a very good crime fighting outfit for uh, guns, you know, taking guns off the street.
1: So as and, I think most of us who, you know, understand most about policing from TV really and, and the news maybe a little bit less, understand there to be precincts which cover certain areas Uh, but it sounds like you were first in precincts but then you were on citywide I'll just call them task force that might be the wrong word or citywide division so uh, how many precincts were there and how many citywide um, policing units or divisions were there Um, and and how does that work well
0: I'll give you a general uh breakdown on the police department. You had basically three separate units. You had, well, not separate, but you had the, the patrol force. You had the detective division and you had an emergency service division and well they were all subunits, but those were the, the general leading outfits. But underneath, like say the uh, patrol division, you had a uh, borough commands, the five boroughs had a borough commander, and within those borough commands, there were breakdowns. The first breakdown would be called a division, and then you had the precincts. There were 75 precincts in the city. And in the detective division, it followed the same, uh, same uh, manner of, uh, of organized structure. You had the patrol borough commander, and then division commanders, and then squad commanders that were in the precincts and the emergency service division that was they had a specialized unit for uh you know rescues and breakdowns and all that kind of stuff it was a different kind of policing but the two basic uh crime fighting units was the patrol force and the detective division
1: and another very basic question and hopefully then we'll get into some more specifics but generally speaking what's the difference between the uniformed or the patrol units and the detectives well
0: usually the patrol force is out there to prevent crime by their you know by their very presence the detectives are basically after the fact investigators after a crime is committed then the detectives usually are involved in finding the perpetrators patrol force basically if you want to their job is to prevent crime by visibility and patrolling in uniform the detectives are follow-up investigators all in civilian clothes
1: and how does rank work in that so if you are a you know a uniform sergeant and you're a detective sergeant and it's not a crime scene are you co-equal versus if it's a, time, a crime scene the detective has Um, command, or how how does that work? And I I just pick sergeant randomly. It could apply to lieutenant or or really any other rank. Well, usually uh, in a precinct, uh, you start
0: off with a commanding officer, and it depends on the precinct. If it's one of those uh, precincts with a high amount of crime and all, there's usually a deputy inspector in command. But basically, captains command patrol precincts. Within that command, then you have a lieutenants and the sergeants, and of course the police officers. The detectives usually have in that particular precinct. There was always what they call squad detectives. That's usually a lieutenant. He may have an assistant, which would be a sergeant, and those and detectives, and then they would be responsible for the crime within that particular precinct. Then generally, uh, you had in the Detective, viewer, you had uh, citywide outfits uh, like a uh, special victims units in the boroughs, which would investigate sex crimes. You had robbery units in the borough that would specialize on robbery, the crime of robbery, and then you had burglary, larceny. So it all depended on what you were doing as to where you would be. If you were doing after the fact. Crime. You're a detective. If you're out there trying to prevent crime, you're in the uniform, in the uniform, and that's basically the the rudimentary duties of both.
1: You know. I mean, but who outranks who? You know, in if if it's not a well, even in the you know generally in the you're out in the field. There's a you know everyone's responding to a call. You have a uniform sergeant respond. You have a detective sergeant respond. But it's it's a it's an active crime scene. It's not after the fact. It's not clearly something for detectives. Who is the commanding uh, person on the on the scene?
0: Well, if if it's an ongoing crime, let's for instance, the uh, you have a barricaded uh, perp in a store. The uniform force would be in command. Uh, if it was a crime that had already been committed. And generally, the patrol force would be the first ones on the scene. But uh, if it was, say, a robbery and the detectives show up, well, then whoever they would, the, the uniform force would let the detectives take over and do whatever is necessary. You know?
1: OK, so it's not really a procedure. It's, al- it's almost like sort of like an unspoken that you're, you guys are going to carry the ball out afterwards. So you're going to you might as well be quarterbacking now.
0: I mean, it's a procedure that's gone on for hundreds of years in the department, but that's the way it goes. Once the detectives show up and the crime has to be investigated, they're, in, they're usually in charge of the scene. But, uh, you know, if a sergeant from the uh, uniform force shows up and a lieutenant from the uh, detective division, naturally the lieutenant would outrank the sergeant, even though we're in different units. And the same goes... If a captain from the patrol force showed up and there's a lieutenant from the detective division on the scene, the captain would kind of be in charge. But he would he would allow or let the detective commanders do whatever they want. They usually don't interfere. But
1: in general, the higher rank would be in charge. Right. Yeah, I was just wondering in the case of a tie, but I, I assumed what you were saying, but thank you for clearing that up because I'm not sure that the audience would have made the same assumption. All right, so so moving on from just uh, plain old rank, I mean, first of all, I, I have someone who's been on the floor since 1959. You retired, I guess, what, about 30 years ago?
0: 1996.
1: 1996, so 25 years ago. Okay, so what is the difference between chief of police and commissioner?
0: The Chief in the Department, that would be the his rank would be the Chief of Department. He's got four stars, and he's the highest ranking member of the force. That's a term used for the uh, all the uniform members and detectives. They're members of the Force. The Police Commissioner and the First Deputy Commissioner are actually civilians. So the four Star Chief of Department, He's got the highest rank in the department, four stars. Chief of detectives and the chief of patrol, they have three stars, and then it goes right down the line. But uh, in reality, the police commissioner is a civilian.
1: So it's sort of like the the uh, military. So we have a secretary of defense who's civilian, and you, then you have your you know your secretary of the army, secretary of the well, probably not the secretary is probably a bad example, but you've got your joint chiefs of staff or uh, you know top officer or whatever in in each
0: branch. Yeah, very similar. In fact, the uh, the ranks, the uh, symbols of the ranks, are the same. The four stars would be a general, and the three stars would be, uh, in the police department is a three-star chief, like the chief of detectives, and then the military, a lieutenant general. And then it goes down. The the two stars, one star, and then the eagle, which would be a... uh, an inspector in the police department and would be a colonel in the military. But the ranks are very similar, all the way down to sergeant.
1: Okay. All right. So from TV and movies, we always see the local police department, you know, they're always disgusted or really annoyed when the when the feds come into town, when the FBI tries to assert jurisdiction. Is that true or is that is that drama? No,
0: there, there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of... Uh, it's my, it's my case. Oh, it's my case. Oh, but that's usually settled by high authority. They'll come in with rational ideas and heads. But there, I would say, we get along, there are units, there are detectives and FBI agents in New York City, uh, there are task forces, the terrorist task force. And so they do work together. But, you know, on occasion, there's a little hard feelings created when somebody tries to come in and take your case away from you, you know. But that's water under the bridge, you know. It just fades away quickly, and then the aim is to solve the case.
1: Is there ever any relief that you're like, oh my God, this case is a powder keg. I'm so glad they came in and and took it. Or is it, you're just not wired that way if you're a detective?
0: No, you're not wired that way. If it's your case, you want to solve it, you know. No matter how uh, bad, you know, things go, uh, like during the Son of Sam case, uh, what people didn't realize—you know—they watch television, and there's always a case has to be solved within the hour, and there's always a bright spot—you know—some piece of evidence comes around. That's not the way it works in actual reality. Uh You know, at a at a crime scene, any investigation, an investigation that started, you you're always looking for. Uh, Witnesses definitely looking for witnesses at the crime. You want to see if there's any physical evidence at the crime, and that you're collecting that. And uh, most importantly, you want to know what the heck was the motive in this case, especially in homicides. Uh, what what was the motive? And usually, if you have one or two of those things, what we would call would be a grounder. Looks like we're going to solve this case. If there isn't any of those three. Plus. And what they, you got a tough case, you know, and then the, like in the Son of Sam case, an additional factor would be the stranger on stranger. You know, that, that's an, always a difficult case when just a stranger walks up and kills somebody, you know. Where do you start? Where do you go? On television, it's easy. Somebody saw somebody or knows somebody. But that's not the case in actual life.
1: Right. And we're definitely yeah. going to get into Son of Sam, as as you well know. But of course this is me, so I have to get into more of the banal stuff. And and I guess at, at twenty five years retire, just celebrate your ninetieth birthday. You're not afraid of much, but if you don't want to answer anything, don't answer something. But who was like first of all, when, when, when there's when the shit hits the fan, who are you more afraid of coming down the chief or the commissioner?
0: Uh, usually the commissioner doesn't get involved in cases, so it's, it's always you're reporting to the the, the higher chief. You know, they're the ones who create the stress. What about the but, mayors? Uh, the mayor? Well, that's that's now you're getting into the political field, you which I always try to stay out of. But the con, the mayor can always exert a lot of pressure through the police commissioner and then down through the ranks. They they can almost establish policy. You know.
1: Who in in your years of service you you serve with uh, or under a lot of mayors? So who 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 were the best? Who were the worst? From your perspective or from police perspective?
0: You know, up until you get to the uh, super chief, that would be the chief of the deck. You know, you know very little political influence in the police department. Now, once you get up above that rank, you. Know, three stars, four stars, and it becomes a little political. And and I thought the nicest gentleman I ever met was uh, Jink, uh, Dinkins, uh, Mayor Dinkins, uh, a perfect gentleman, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got along very well. but And he, I have no idea, never heard from or interfered with anything that we were doing. So, and, uh, of course, uh, Giuliani, uh, started a whole new way of, uh, policing the city. You know, we, we went, uh, and then we had some tremendous, uh, drops in crime. Uh, so it was a different sort of, uh, we went from a community, uh, type of policing to a, uh, uh, what do they call it? Broken windows, I think was the policy. Uh, it was, uh, you know, you pay attention to the little things, and then when you correct the little things, the uh, bigger things get
1: corrected. Right, going you know I mean? going after the nuisance crimes. Right. So that was I, I enjoyed
0: working for both of those, Dinkins and Giuliani.
1: Yeah, and for those, my
0: opinion,
1: it, for those in the audience who are younger and are thinking about Rudy Giuliani now and, and don't sound like you're recognizing a competent person, the same applies for us older people too. It's, it's like not the same person or if it was, it, it's the, the, the traits are, uh, enacted in a very different way. So if you're here, if you're in shock and awe hearing people talk about Rudy Giuliani as a effective leader, he, he was America's mayor after, after 9-11, 2001. Uh, I mean, not everyone liked his tactics or whatever, but, but you know, the, the city, when, uh, you know, definitely in, improved, at least from an outsider perspective. So, different guys, uh, even though it's the same man. So, don't be surprised. Um Okay, so those are mayors. I know the commissioners usually aren't as famous, um, but who was, like, the best commissioner to work under, and who was, you know, sort of, like, down there? Well, I'll tell you,
0: the one I liked was Benjamin Ward. He was... uh the first uh, black commissioner, and he's a former detective. Maybe that's why I like him as much. We, we were on the same wavelength, but uh, I got promoted twice with uh, Benjamin Ward, so he's always my favorite, right? Sure. But he, he yeah, he uh, he had a, an understanding of, of how detectives operate, and what they do, and all, uh, where some of the most of the police commissioners. If they came from within the job, and a lot of, when, let's see, I think I only worked for two commissioners that didn't come up through the ranks. Usually, you come up through the ranks in the patrol force, you know, Uh, not too many other than Ward. I can't think of another uh, police commissioner for some reason, I don't know. Uh, But he understood detectives, he understood how we work, and uh, so I got along famously with him. Although I wasn't the chief of detectives at the time, I was just the uh, what was uh, the rank I had was deputy chief, and I was uh, I commanded uh, Queens and Manhattan under uh, under Ben Ward, but he did promote me to uh, deputy chief and assistant chief, okay. and Dick Condon, who was a, uh, who came through the ranks. Uh, he promoted me to Chief of Detectives. Oh, great. So I'm always great dick.
1: Okay. What was your first big case I- in any capacity that you worked on?
0: Uh, when you big case, I, I guess it would have to be Son of Sam in Queens. I was a captain at the time, and I had the homicide squad. And, well, actually three homicide squads. So I was the commanding officer of the... Three homicide squads in Queens. And uh, that, but that basically, up until then, it, it was, uh, uh, you know, nothing of a greater or, or that instilled any fear. But Berkowitz, uh, he turned the city upside down. And, you know, and I think that's what launched my career anyway when we made the arrest.
1: Okay. So I'm going to sort of frame it a little bit just because, just I mean, Son of Sam was, you know, 43 44 years ago i think it was actually starting in 76 um so right. a lot of the audience may know a little bit about it or nothing but the son of sam was one of the first serial killers um and of course nobody knew that he was a sir well no knew he was a he or that he was a serial killer at when they first started um, but this was New York, nineteen seventy six. Uh, so if you've heard the son of Sam and David Berkowitz, it's it's the same person. Son of Sam was sort of like a a moniker or a pseudonym that he used. He sent cryptic right. letters, and that's where the name came from. It wasn't something that the media put upon him. Uh, different than like the uh, Zodiac killer or or whatever. It, yeah. was, it was sort of around the same time as you know, man. Killer. right the 44 caliber killer because that was a very unusual weapon back then i mean sort of like only dirty harry was uh you know walking around with those things and dirty harry was in the movies um so yeah it was it scared the heck out of people i mean 1976 i'm eight or nine years old and and even i knew i was afraid to to go into the city and and yes I, i grew up in long island um and you know my dad worked in manhattan every day and you know and so my grandfather at the time who was still with us and you know my uncle worked there and you know pretty much everyone i knew everyone whose you know parents worked, they they you know Got on the train and they got on the Long Island Railroad and they rode into the city. Every day that was that was life. And you know, you you leave at seven in the morning, you get back at seven thirty at night. The end. Um, so, with that little sort of frame up, I will let you take us then into you know the son of Sam and how you sort of got put on the case, when you got put on the case, and and yeah, tell the. I mean, obviously this is this is the big this is the big lead of of the show. So we sort of got into it almost. You know, almost accidentally. But if that's your first big case, then hey, at that what a what a splash! So, I, this is your story, so I'll let you tell it. Yeah, well, it all began, at least for me, uh,
0: when Christine Foreign was murdered in Beverly Hills. Uh, up until then, he had committed prior crimes, but we weren't involved because the first homicide occurred up in the Bronx, and. Uh, At that time, well, maybe I should begin a little further than that. We had a police commissioner, Pat Murphy, uh, who didn't particularly like detectives. As I said, we only had a couple that I know of. But anyway, he decided that the precinct squads should be under the command of the patrol borough or the patrol captain, the precinct captain. So he took those detectives. The uh, a bulk of the detectives, we were citywide under the chief of detectives. We were in a burglary squads. We were the uh, robbery squads, the sex crime squads, and the homicide squads. So uh, the local detectives uh, would do uh, minor cases, you know, and we would come in and pick up the heavier cases. So the original thing that Berkowitz started was a homicide up in the Bronx. But then he had two local shootings where he wounded two young ladies, but no one died and there was a shooting with the, up in the, the 109 Keenan shooting, uh, another one uh, just a scalp wound. So we, I wasn't involved in any of that because one was in a different borough in the Bronx and the other two were handled by the precincts. But when Christine Ford was murdered, then we be, that's when I be, got involved with the case. So, but we're going back in time. It was on midnight and we get a call and I, I was just going off duty. I was doing a four to 12 and they said, we got a bad shooting in uh, Forest Hills, a young girl sitting in a car. So I responded, even though the tour had ended and I'm, we're at the scene of the crime and couple of the precinct detectives uh, who I knew, but they weren't under my control. They were under the precinct command. They come up to me and they said, hey, boss, uh, we had a couple of shootings. Uh, and the slug was a big weapon, it had to be, uh, they say it was a forty-four caliber. And we're looking in, the. I'm looking into the car that he had committed the crime with, uh, Christine. And on the dashboard was an expended round. And I said, gee, that looks kind of big. What do you think that is? He said, that looks like a forty four. So based on that, just the fact that the, the detective said they had a large caliber gun and two prior shootings. And they mentioned the Bronx had one. So the next day I called and I got permission to bring in the detectives from the Bronx and bring in the the local detectives in Queens, although they were two different precincts that had the shootings. And we sat together in my office and we were discussing everything and all. And I got, I called it the, uh, my boss who was the commanding officer of Queens detective who wound up being the chief of detectives before me, uh, Dick Nicastro. And I told him, I said, you know, this looks interesting. I was like, don't have anything definite, but we got a bit with, checking with forensics now to see if there's a correlation between the shootings and the Bronx and the Queens. And okay. So he said, you know what, Joe put put together a few people and maybe you just take yourself off the chart and run with it. So that was the beginning of the specialized unit to investigate this Berkowitz and the son of Sam. So we're going right along, you know, we're doing our thing, not making much headway. Cause we had, like I said, the stranger on stranger crimes, very difficult, but naturally. So we started getting a lot of calls into the, pre, into the precincts. And, uh, I, we started uh, what I call the three eyes of, in, of, uh, investigation. We, I created three boxes and the detectives, when they got the leads or they went out on, they got a call. If it was immediate it had to be responded to very quickly. Or if it was uh, important, but not that important that you had to rush out immediately. And then the third box was ignore. And we got a lot of those. Uh, So that was the three things that we we did right up until the end when we caught uh, Berkowitz, we had this three I I used to call it the three eyes of uh, working on the case. So if a call come in and there was a uh, lead and it was, Hey, that looks good. That was immediately taken care of. It may be get another call. Well, I know this guy. It was important, but not immediate. And we were to get around to it. And during the investigation, the one box that I was involved with basically was the ignore, because I felt as though, you know, after everything became routine, the detectives, you know, they may classify it as a, so I, I always thought that maybe our guy was put in the ignore. So I paid attention to that one bit. I reviewed that uh, daily, you know, I knew the immediate they were working on the important would we get around to it. So I concentrated on the ignore, And to our credit, uh, or to the uh, detectives credit, uh, he, we never did get any information. On burglars until the night we arrested him. Wow!
1: So, and you were the lead. Were you? Were you officially the lead of the of a task force, or how did that come about? Did it just was it just organic?
0: Yeah. Well, as as things progressed, you know, and he and then he struck again uh, with the double homicide up in the Bronx, and so now we had two borough. Well, we always had two boroughs, but the borough commander in the in the Bronx. Uh, he allowed uh, for us to take a couple of detectives that had the case in the Bronx and work with us and then uh, we had a uh, another homicide Virginia Vascoichin she was killed about a block and a half away from where Christine Foyne was killed so now we had two homicides and that's when we created the task force uh, Chief of Detectives told the Queensboro commander put together so he put me in charge and we had basically around 15 or 20 detectives that we were running with, with the, uh, with the, uh, task force yeah. until it, we it's... got the, oh, go um, ahead. I, I, I'll tell you an interesting story that, uh, not, not, well, in fact, I don't know if anybody knows about it, but you always have, uh, people call, they claim to be clairvoyant, you know, sure. Uh Well, they claim to be. So I'm I'm in my office. This is after the Virginia Voscarichian homicide. So he had killed one in the Bronx, Christine Foyne, and Voscarichian. So the phone rings, and I pick up the phone, and a gentleman with a heavy Hispanic uh, accent is talking. And he tells me, please don't hang up. He says, but my wife has these special talents. And so I said, "Oh, here we go again, you, but anyway she's I could hear her in the background. she's talking in Spanish, and the husband is interpreting for me and this is what she tells me. She says he's going to strike again, it's going to be on a street, but it's not a street. The car is going to be black and red, and he's going he's gonna kill boy and a boy and a girl or a man and a woman." Uh, so I said, okay, thank you very much. And I hung up. And that same night, we get the call for Virginia Foscarici. So we go out and see a very pretty young girl. She was murdered right on the street. So with the, I'm looking at it, and the detectives, I had told them about the phone call. And they said, looks like uh, your clairvoyance was wrong. I said, yeah, that's that way. So now we. We were investigating her death and think about it? I don't know the exact period of time. I'm home at nine in bed, and I get a call. We got a. Uh, we he's hit again. He's up in the Bronx. So I get dressed, and we go. I go to the Bronx. I pull up. I'm on the Hutchinson River Parkway, the exit ramp. It's a street, but it's not a street. I look at the car. It's a black and read the car, Buick, the two people in the car, a man and a woman both killed. And the letter to me was at the scene to uh, Captain Borelli. So as soon as I heard that, you know, I, that I, I immediately I went back and I checked my notes and the, the phone call I had received. The fellow left his uh, telephone. I immediately called him and I wanted to meet with his wife. So he, we do meet and I had the letter to me, but I may had made a copy of it and I put it in an envelope and uh, I meet them and I gave it a name, Mrs. Rodriguez, which isn't her name because she didn't want any, he didn't want to talk to anybody. She said, you're the only person I'll talk to. You got to promise me that and all that. So I agreed to all that. And she gets in my car. Her husband gets in the back. She sits alongside of me and I give her this envelope with the letter to me in it, or a copy of it. And she doesn't open it, she just holds it in her hands, and she hands it back to me. And she says, that's from the killer. And now you can imagine how <laughs> what's going through my mind, right? right. She pre- she predicted to the T, the double homicide in the Bronx. And she knew this was the letter from the killer. So wow. there were no secrets in the police department. The Bronx finds out they want to talk to her and everybody wants to talk to her and I said I can't I gave them my word I said I, I can't go back on my word the next thing I know I'm getting a call from the police commissioner uh he was Michael J. Card
1: okay round two name something that's not
0: boring a laundry Ooh, a book club computer solitaire huh oh Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com.
1: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy.
0: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Who was my boss in the TPF years ago? He said, Joe, you got to turn around. I said, No, Commissioner, do what you want to me. I said, but I made a promise to her that I would be the only person she'd talk to. And uh, so he said, you gave her your word? I said, absolutely. He said, well, then we got to do it through you. So uh, then from that on, they had a million questions for her, uh, but she was un- unable to get uh, much more. We the Son of Sam, but one crazy incident. I take it to the Christine Foyne homicide scene. And she says, I want to walk that way. So she's walking. She stops in front of the house. And she says something terrible happened in that house. I said, really? And in that house, we had a homicide. And she said, the person has difficulty walking, but he's the killer. We never proved, we never solved the case, but the main suspect was the nephew, and he had just had his foot amputated and he was on crutches. So now I'm getting even more curious about it, right? But eventually it, uh, she wasn't able to go much further than that. But that's a part of the story that uh, you never heard before. People never heard before. Although I said, maybe it might be interesting to some, you
1: know. Oh, it's definitely interesting, and and uh, I, I'm sure that you're you're never missing an episode of of this show. But we we definitely explore sort of the alternative uh, periodically, as you well know. Um, yeah. But. Um, you know, uh, just to also, for, for the sake of the younger audience, I mean, the, sort of the way people think about the AR 15 now, that's what people thought about the Saturday night special back then, which is a 22, uh, which is a small caliber pistol. That's what everyone was afraid of then, because they were easy to right. get, uh, this, that, and the other thing. Um, 38 is what the, I believe, was standard issue police revolver. Forty-four caliber was unusual. That's a big gun. Now, nowadays, nothing's unusual, Um, but back then, but women were so in fear because it looked like women were being targeted exclusively, if not primarily, and they all seemed to have like longer uh, hair, and so women were all cutting their hair hair short, and I think they were coloring it. I don't remember if they were coloring it blonde or brown.
0: That's brunettes. So that was the big deal: long hair, brunette. And don't forget, I have four daughters, and three of them were teenagers. And so uh, I was a little bit uh, right on top of things with the the hair. But when we did finally make the arrest and uh, we were interviewing, it, it didn't matter what color hair, long or short, he was just an opportunist. If he saw the opportunity and it helped and he pleased himself with it, yeah, this is good for me, he did It didn't matter what color hair. Uh, long or short and then he wound up uh, shooting both male and female on two occasions so all that kind of stuff uh it's interesting while you're, you're talking about it but in the final analysis didn't mean a thing to him
1: right it was just uh opportunity and means and right. and you know i guess he pl- figured he could get make a clean getaway um there was one woman, her last name was Moskowitz. I know that her mother at some point said that it was physically impossible for him to do that killing and get away. What, what was she referring to and, and, you know, why was she wrong? Uh, I don't know exactly uh, um,
0: what she was referring to. Uh, I mean, of, of all the homicides that, it, that occurred, that was the one where we had the most available information on. We had, well, the scene of the, uh, it was kind of not like a lover's land, but it was a kind of a, a darkened spot of a, where a playground type of a place in Brooklyn. And we had a car parked right in front of the uh, Stacey Mussel with his car. And there was a young couple in there, and they observed this guy walking toward the car, taking a crouch, pointing the gun right in the window and firing. We have the, uh, the witness who finally gave us the, the double park car. She has him walking into the park like setting. So I don't know what Mrs. Moskowitz was talking about, uh, about not being able to, but he did. He walked right up to the car and took a position and fired into it. So what's so hard about that? I mean, why? Why would that be impossible to do? So I I don't don't remember her saying that, but if she did say it, uh, I could see that she was grieving with her daughter's death and all she might have said things that she really didn't know about or believe
1: in. Yeah, I think it was uh, about the getaway, um, which I'm not really sure how she would know, but uh, uh, I, I don't know. I guess it was about the distance from where he did the shooting to where... Presumably, the getaway car was. Um, right, yeah. But I mean, well, that's assuming, you know, she knows how fast he runs or exactly where it was parked. And I, I, I'm not sure that was ever
0: determined. It wasn't that much greater of a distance. And uh, there was hardly anybody in that park other than the two in the car. I don't recall ever. We didn't have any witnesses that said they were sitting on a park bench or anything like that. And I don't know, the distance from the one. If there's nobody's around and you don't run away and you just walk away, even a witness might say, "Oh, there was nobody here. I saw this guy walking around." all, but getting, I don't, I, I, well, let me put it this way. When we had him, we had him for 14 hours from the time we arrested him until he was arraigned in court and we went over every aspect of every case and, he, he All the things that we knew, he told us and that verified that to him that number one, he acted alone, which a lot of people said, Oh, he was part of a cult and all that. Uh, no, nah, that wasn't the case. And he told us exactly how he did each homicide or each shooting occurrence, where he went, how he went, where he passed. So it all was consistent with what we knew, you know. And uh, of course, we had on a, the letter that he left at the scene to me. We had his prints, partial prints. We, when we arrested him, he had the forty-four gun, you know, the revolver. So yeah. it all fit,
1: right? Know. It all fit into place once you found him. Now, yeah. I. You know, I refresh my memory by watching the the Netflix docus- docuseries, and that might have been a bit of a mistake. But there was one thing that struck. I mean, frankly, the first episode basically solves the crime. The the, the rest of it, episode two, was devoted to sort of this Satanist cult tie, and that, that's really all it was. And episode three and half of episode four builds up this uh, this gentleman, this, this journalist, uh, Maury Terry, or Terry Maury, who seemed to think there was Maury a bigger Terry. picture. Maury Terry. And then the second half of episode four, which closes, sort of, you know, sort of uh, uh, undermines Moriarty's um, uh, Jenga box, you know, or, or Jenga tower theory. So it sort of, you know, uh, tosses him back down again. Um, but episode episode one is really the only one. If if you really want to see, if you want to get a, a summary of it, you can watch that one. But one thing in that stuck with me, and they sort of glossed over it. Probably purposefully for their own dramatic purposes and for the narrative, which was really more about Maury Terry than it was about the son of Sam. But uh-huh. but they said that there was they they were looking for summonses and they found a summons and Bing there was. So what are they talking about? Like how, how do you find a summons that says David Berkowitz and know what's that? I mean, and what kind of summons did they mean? Like a parking ticket? I mean what? What was that linchpin? What was that watershed uh, moment? Or was it even?
0: Uh, well, uh, I'll tell you exactly what it was, and I'll tell you about Maury Terry. Okay. Number one, he double-parked his car. And then we had a witness named Ce- uh, Cecilia Davis. She was walking her dog, and was walked right past her into the park. And when we were doing a canvas all around, one of the detectives interviewed her, and she said, there was a little activity. She said, the summonses were given to a car double park. So the detective said, where was the car parked? Right by that hydrant. Okay. So now we go into the precinct and we're looking at all the summonses issued that night. Unfortunately, the police officer that issued that summons, it was laid out, his tour was over. So rather than turning it in, he kept it in his locker. And he turned it in when he came back to work. Unfortunately, he was on his two day swing, so that summons didn't get turned in until three, almost three days later. And that's when going through the summonses again and all, because, uh, I forget what the reason I said, okay, you know, that double parked car, where's that summons? From the, what the Davis, what the uh, witness said. And we looked and we couldn't find it. And then eventually we found it. Uh, because the police officer that issued it, he said, Yeah, I take it to the summons. Here it is. So he gives it to Now, on the summons, it's just the plate number and the the type of car, the VIN number, and the plate number. There's no name David Berkowitz on that. That we find out later when we run the plate through the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles. And now it gives us a name and address. And then a detective justice was on the phone, or called, the uh, Yonkers Police Department. And who was the operator of the uh, on the phone call? But that's uh, uh, the victim up there. Uh, yeah, I'm having a senior moment here. Uh, what the heck was his name? The uh, dog and the, the well. anyway, she says, Justice asked her, uh, do you know anything about a, uh, a David Berkowitz? And that was the uh, car. Sam Carr's dog that he had shot, or at least they thought he shot. So he was known to the Carr family, and he was known as a strange individual. So when she said, yeah, a strange individual up here, just as his antenna goes up, and he reports back to his boss, he said, maybe we ought to take a ride right up there and talk to him. So sure enough, we go, they go up. I wasn't with them, but they went up. And they find the car, and according to uh, Eddie Zigo, the detective, he looks into the backseat of the car, and there's a uh, the butt of a rifle, and it looks like a, a letter on the seat, and he he recognized the, the particular way of printing that Birka was shoes. So based on that, they got a uh, search warrant for the car, when they opened up the car, they found the, uh, the weapon was a uh, shotgun. Uh, no, it was, maybe it was a rifle. I'm not too sure. But anyway, they stake out the car. Berkowitz comes down. As soon as he goes to the car, they nail him. They bring him in. He had the gun on him, the forty four, and that was it. And that was the beginning of the end. Uh, so, as far as Maury Terry... When all the, it started the business, you know, uh, I used to get calls all the time from the commissioner's office, Joe, what about this? What about that? Maury Terry says this. I said, first of all, he claims that he didn't act alone. I said, we had him for 14 hours. We, we went over every aspect. Never once did he mention somebody else. And the biggest thing of all is all the shooting stopped when we made the arrest if it was a cult, why wouldn't it continue? I said, and then the two psychiatrists who had him for a month, I spoke to both of them, and without uh, patient-doctor relationship giving that way, i think I just asked him one question. Did he ever say he didn't act alone? And both of them said, no, he acted alone. Let, so, me, let
1: me ask a very simple question uh, on the summons thing. Was it just simply that you know, the, you have a, a parking ticket late at night near a crime scene from Yonkers, and the crime scene, I, I think, was either in Brooklyn or Queens, and that in, in and of itself was unusual enough to to say, let's look at this more closely.
0: No, no, it started before that. When we first got into the act, when I noticed, and we all noticed, I should say I, we noticed, uh, all the occurrences, the shootings prior to Moskowitz, well, if you look at a map of Brooklyn or the city of New York, very close to an expressway or a major thoroughfare. Uh, up in the Bronx, it was very close to the Hutchinson River Parkway. The Queens was the was the Cross Island Parkway. Brooklyn was the uh, the exit on uh, right there by Brighton Beach on the uh, the Belt Parkway. It was always so. We assumed that hey, guy does a shooting, gets into the car. Maybe he gets speeding, and, you know, he's got, he's stressful or whatever it is. And maybe somebody pulled him over and gave him a summons. So we started looking at summonses before, like right? right after the uh, we created the task force, we started looking at summonses where, whenever the we had an occurrence. So that was kind of like a normal thing that we were doing when uh, Stacey Matsu was killed. Okay. Uh, we were so looking when- at the summons.
1: So when you all are and saying a, summons, like like we would just call those tickets.
0: No, no. This particular summons was important to us because, number one, it was double parked. And the woman said that he, the, the driver of the car walked right past her into the park. So that that was more than just looking at all summons. That was a specific summons we were looking at.
1: No, I'm just and- I'm just focusing on the word summons. I think when people think of summons, that's like an order to come to court— and tickets are, you know, when you know when you get pulled over or you get a parking ticket, most people call it tickets. But is it gotcha. just a synonym in New York? Those are called summonses? Yeah.
0: Well, it's a police department. Oh, we cool. call them summons.
1: Gotcha. I don't know what the people call them. Right, right, right. I, I just wanted to clarify. I mean, because when I hear summons, you know, I think something else versus tickets. Right. But in this in this case, it's, it's, it's one and the same. That's it. It's
0: a police officer giving out a ticket. Okay. But Perfect. we call them some.
1: All right. Let's get into, and and listen, it was very thin to begin with, but I think people want to hear what what were their, their claims of ties to Satanism and the cult and Charles Manson. And, you know, in, in, in as much or as little time as you want to give it, uh, you can just sort of uh, say what you looked into and, and how it sort of fell apart. Well, I actually, we, I
0: looked at two, well, uh, I say, I again, we, we looked into uh, two aspects that um, Terry brought up. One was a uh, cemetery that was being used by the Colt up in Yonkers. And another, he mentioned North Dakota, Manat, North Dakota, where uh, Sam Carr's son was in the Air Force out there. Something doing going on out there also. So, Tector was sent out, to, and Manat, he reported back, he had nothing going on strange out there. He was talking about cold bacteria and all, so there was no indication of that. Number two, the cemetery up in the Bronx we found, there was a pet cemetery where people whose pets died, they were burying them in this area alongside the, uh, hutch and it was a, uh, we called it a pet cemetery. No human bones were found in that. So those were the only two aspects of Terry's or whatever else he was claiming. Uh, that I was involved in looking at other than the phone calls that I would get from my superiors about, well, what about this Joe, What about that? And I would just tell them, you know, what we know. So I said, uh, the letter that was addressed to me, I said, we only had his fingerprints on it. I said, don't you think maybe a cult member might want to read the letter that uh, he was writing to me? I said, we only found Berkowitz's partial prints. Oh, by the way, that's another thing. With the modern technology today, we'd have, we'd have had them that night, because
1: the up until
0: that time, uh, you, uh, any fingerprint, there was a fingerprint section in the police department. But everything was a hand search. You know, it was would, uh, would be analyzed by a uh, detective, uh, and if you had a single print, you could. They didn't have a, the ability. To look at a single print, it had to be a, the uh, 10 prints, and they had a partial print, impossible. But with today's technology, we'd have submitted that partial print to a computer, and within 10 minutes, Berkowitz's name would have popped up because his fingerprints were on file. Number one in the military, and number he was a, uh, what the heck, uh, those post office. So they were all a fingerprint and they're in the the found that. So we would have come up with him within an hour after the homicide up in the Bronx where he left his letter to me. Or not within an hour. Right after they were able to develop the uh, latent prints on the letter, we would have put them in this computer and boom, Berkowitz's name would have popped up. So under today's technology, we would have had him much sooner.
1: And he was writing letters directly to you, right?
0: One letter directly to me. The second letter was to Jimmy Breslin.
1: Oh, right uh, the, uh, the the columnist. Um, right. And you were under well, you didn't know it, but you and your family were under protective uh, details, right? No,
0: no i i I found out later there was a we somebody did an interview of Marlon Hopkins, who was one of the detectives. And it was on the. I was also interviewed, and it was it was one of those TV shows. And I'm watching the show, and Marlon is telling him how when that letter was found at the scene and up in the Bronx, a lot of people thought it was a threatening letter to me. Uh, I kind of looked at it. I wasn't too sure it was threatening at all. In fact, I told my boss, I, said, "I don't know if it's that threatening." But anyway, the detectives did, and they started. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Boyd were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Marlon said they started following me, make sure I got home. And I called Marlon after that, and I said, you're crazy. I said, I know how to make a tail. I said, nobody followed me. They said, oh, yeah, we did. He said, what were you doing? I said, I'm making four left turns. I said, if you're still behind me after the fourth turn, I said, I know you. I'm being tailed. He said, yeah, but we know where you're going. We picked you up halfway home. We didn't take you right from the station house. I said, oh, okay. (laughs) So they did. They they knew better. They knew I've been looking for a tail, and I could spot a tail. But So they did the right thing. They picked me up uh, maybe 10 blocks from the station house. So by that time, I'm not looking in the rearview mirror because I already settled that nobody's tailing me.
1: Well, I think that's nice. I think that's a nice part of the story.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, well, I was very grateful for that, you know, and uh, so I, I it, it I got kind of goose pimples when I when I found out that they were tell man.
1: Yeah, well. and you, and you had you had four daughters, which at this point were you know, well, one was my age, and the others were you know a few years older or younger. So, I mean, yeah, and not to mention a wife and you know everything else. So. That, that That's nice. That was, uh, you know, it's a nice heartwarming part of the story that I think it sort of gets yeah. overlooked. Um, then, well, the Lindbrook
0: Police Department, we lived in Lindbrook, and they had their own PV. They were nice, too. They they kept an eye on the house. You know, they would ride by and make sure everything was okay.
1: Well, good. And back then it was Lindbrook, USA. It was the only one. I guess there's been a couple more incorporated since then. But, uh um, and I know that because I'm from Limburg. and spoiler, I got this big interview because I actually know one of his daughters. I'm not going to say her name uh, for her protection and because she didn't say I could say her name, but uh, I know her, you know, uh, through junior high and high school and then, of course, beyond. So there we go. Because um, uh, nobody out there thinks I'm a journalist, including me. I, you know, I just I just uh, dabble in it. Um okay so son of sam uh you know scary affected the whole city uh mysterious because of the randomness but at the end of the day it was it was a crime and and the satan stuff nonsense no ties to charles manson uh and but you have you know and everyone knows you for that but you were involved in, in some very big other cases of local and and really national prominence so you want to touch on some of those I know you're on a on a time schedule but uh you know uh, I'll let you take the narrative I, I know you mentioned to me Howard Beach and you also mentioned to me the uh, original World Trade Center bombing um but if there's anything else certainly you know feel free the floor is yours There was uh what was the um uh, oh uh, uh I'm
0: trying to think now maybe you you could help me Jeff. Sure. The uh, uh, the rabbi that was, that was, uh, assassinated up in the hotel, uh, Rabbi Maya Kahani, mm-hmm. that was an interesting case too. Uh, a couple of the politicians, you know, he had a, he had a list in his pocket, uh, when we caught the killer, uh, and it, it, on Kahani, Kahani's name was on the list and there were a few other, and, uh, once that came out, a couple of the politicians said, "Was my name on it?" And uh, put my name on it. <laughs> <a> of,
1: <laughs> they wanted their names on it so that they would get. They wanted, yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. But the uh, the, son of, uh, the Howard Beach case, uh, that was uh, at that time. I was a deputy chief; I had gotten promoted, and uh, that was interesting because uh, the mayor and the police commissioner, who was Ben Ward at the time. Uh, they likened that homicide to or the death to uh, a lynching in Mississippi. So as soon as they made that comparison, I was at a press conference. I went back to the squad and I told me, we got to get this solved. I said, uh, you know, the mayor and the PC. So we solved that in 24 hours, you know, straight through. You know, very few people uh, know, but when you get a heavy case like that, Hours become unimportant now uh, so we went 20 we went 24 hours with a with the lead and then we took a few more hours and we finally got it all wrapped up. I think within 36 hours we had that whole case wrapped up but that was a hell of a
1: job by the detectives you know? they did a great job and but this if, was just to, to back up what what was that case was that the assassination of, of Kahani or was this a different case?
0: No, Kahani was, uh, that was, we got a break with that, the homicide. He was a taxi cab driver and he got in a taxi cab and he was stopped by an officer and we made, and then we uh, followed up and we made the arrest. But I'm talking about the, uh, the uh, three black fellows that were chased by a group of white kids. in In Howard Beach. Beach. One ran across the uh, Belt Parkway and he was hit by a car and killed. Another one was caught by a few of them and given a little bit of a beating. And the third one escaped without any harm. Uh, but the uh, the death on the highway, you know, that uh, as a matter of fact, a young kid that was, he was an English kid, John Lester. Young kid, he wanted, was, uh, he wanted to be a wise guy, you know, a member of the mob. Mm-hmm. And, and he initiated everything. And I, it was just in the paper last year he was uh he finished his term in, in uh in prison he was deported to England and he passed away and he, big news over there in england John Lester
1: so these and, were just uh, guys who thought that they would yeah. they would make an impression locally in in their area and make it into the mob by what keeping uh, their their area pure is is that what it was it was just basically pure racism No. uh um, it was pure
0: racism, but it was instigated with a kid that want. We call him a wannabe. He wants to be a, a wise guy. You know? So that was he initiated. He used the expression the, "the niggers on the on the causeway," and that a whole group of them they all got, got upset about it, and they all say. But he was the prime mover in that whole bit. You know. But uh, of course, the, the guys that followed them—they uh, were kind of—they were all guilty. We locked up. I think uh, eventually we had them all in custody, but I think we only arrested about six of them. The how- ones that were we could identify to chase them onto the Parkway, and the ones that assaulted uh, Sanderford.
1: How-, how did we- you identify them? Was were there eyewitnesses? Were there was there yeah. CCTV back then?
0: Uh, we, we, we finally, we had a suspect, the detectives got a tip on a, uh, a kid that might've been, we grabbed the kid, we worked on him for a little bit and he turned him around and he, uh, he gave him one, then we grabbed him, he gave another, and it was like, a domino theory, you grab one and the rest of them fall in line, you know? Right. They all so, flipped. So at one time we had a bunch of kids and their parents in the station ourselves. So, uh, but, uh. But that was basically it. But the big discussion after was what what crime could we charge them with? And they did a little research up in the, the DA's office, and that's how they come up with the being chased and the death could be a homicide uh, uh, prosecution,
1: felony murder. Know. Is that is that what it was? The yeah.
0: well, I... you know, actually. He was chased onto the parkway, but the kids chasing him didn't have a thing to do with his death, the car, you know? And then we looked at the uh, driver of the car. He wasn't involved with anybody. And so now, so it was a big discussion that night. I remember the DA coming. I said, what are we gonna charge this schedule? And, oh, well, we're doing some research on that now. And and, uh, they didn't really come up with the crime until they, I don't know where the hell they found it. One of the books, I guess about uh, this chase that happened upstate New York and uh, the subsequent uh, death and uh, the charge was murder. So that's
1: what they found it on. Okay. It seems pretty obvious. I mean, you know, the getaway driver in a a bank robbery going wrong doesn't pull a trigger either, but they're, you know, they're part of it, so.
0: Yeah, but this was a a pure civilian, you know, he had nothing to do with anything. Just right, and he couldn't avoid because he ran right out in
1: front of him. Oh no, I don't. I don't mean the driver. The driver. I mean, you know, uh, you know, it's maybe just the uh, reflexes, or maybe they never had a chance. I mean, the guy's chasing. I mean, when you do that chase and you chase onto a highway, I mean, sort of the consequences flow from your actions.
0: Right. Well, you know, that's one thing to say it, but to find it in the law books, that's another thing,
1: right? Right, or to convince a jury.
0: Yeah, and those the kids, the kids stopped at the uh, at the fence. The, uh, the victim jumped over the fence. He went through the eastbound lane of traffic. He made it to the median. And then he got hit by the car on the westbound traffic. So he was quite a distance away from the group. That was another, you know, that they saw out as a complication.
1: Right. A nexus kind of thing. Yeah,
0: They had stopped, you know. So, you know, it, would, it took a while for them to work it out, but they did, you
1: know. Okay. Well, good. Um... All right. And then uh, was there, you know, uh, I, I don't know where you want to take us
0: next. Great bombing. That, that was the stupid. Thank God people are stupid. You know, the uh, the people that uh, they rented a truck to put the explosives in, everything went according to their plan. They parked the truck, the bomb was set off. Then they realized they went back to get their deposit <laughs> on the truck and that was lo and behold we had uh, identified the truck uh through the bell housing i don't know if people are familiar but the vin number it's in a lot of places on a car it isn't just in the windshield it's in the bell house it's all over secret places where they have the vin numbers and a very sharp emergency service cop in the uh, after the scene of the bombing he says hey that Bell housing comes from a truck and it's all the way over here where the car, they used to separate in the real trade center where you park, of uh, tar- uh, you know, bought trucks and vans from the cars. And this bell housing was found all the way over where the cars were parked. So the cop right the say, what's it doing all the way over here? And that started everybody's imagination. They did a check on the van. They find out it's a rented vehicle in New Jersey. Uh, the uh, the alleged people who rented it apparently looked like they might be Arabs, so it all fell you know it all fell in, and then uh, they staked it out and then they grabbed them in one one reason or another and everything was up. But basically, that was a great job by that emergency service cop who uh, found the VIN number.
1: And this was 1993, and this was back. This was the Twin Towers, World Trade Center. Right,
0: that was the first uh, bombing. They would have brought that down uh, because the way that building was constructed, or both of them was constructed, it was kind of like a straight line of uh, columns all the way up, and the floors, the concrete floors, actually were stiffened. That stiffened up the uh, the vertical beams. So when this when this truck exploded in the basement, it blew away two or three of the floors above it, the concrete. So those girders that support the building were kind of weakened, and they were shaken. and they only they only kept that building up by securing by uh, welding steel in between the girders. <clears throat> excuse me, to take the place of the concrete. Otherwise, they 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 would have brought down that building.
1: Wow. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we learned in 2001 is those buildings were engineered to come down directly straight to, I guess, prevent collateral damage. But uh, that that same safety feature, I guess, was a structural uh, or was a, I guess, security uh, weakness. Did they know that going in or is that just was that would have just been dumb luck or do we not know the answer to that? I'm sure we do, know? everybody was responding
0: there uh, must have been the engineers from the uh, uh, told them that that building is in danger of falling until they stiffen up those beams, you know, so everybody was kept away. The building was evacuated and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I, you know, I remarked at the time, I said, you know, I said, kid, I remember during World War Two, a bomber flew into the Empire State Building. I said, and all it did was knock a few bricks out of place. I said they brought down this building by flying a plane into it, you know. So uh, it was strange. At least that was my thought when I got to the scene. I thought, I immediately thought of that B twenty five bomber flying into the uh, the Empire State Building during World War Two. Uh, it's amazing how your mind works, right?
1: Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, I <laughs> that's a pretty cl- uh, close association. Um... But, uh, I guess, uh, very different types of planes, very different fuel, and, and, and maybe something to the construction. Then. Maybe uh, they don't build them like they used to, as, uh, you know, uh, applies to buildings as well.
0: Sure, absolutely,
1: right. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: uh, I guess the, the Empire State Building is all masonry, right? I think so, yeah. You know, the World Trade Center is all glass and steel. Yep. Who
1: the hell knows? Exactly. Well,
0: uh, uh, is there anything else you want? Because I think I gotta keep going
1: here. No, yeah, you've been really generous with your time. We're we're at about an hour and fifteen minutes, and that's fifteen minutes more than you said you had. So no, we covered the the big ones, and I really appreciate you being on. You're always welcome back, or you know. But uh, I appreciate it. And listen, I I thank you for all of your service, your years of service, to keeping. Uh, our our city safe which uh definitely impacted where i lived and also thank you for letting your daughter on a date go in our prom limo so that was that was nice as well
0: okay So uh, you're welcome but listen anytime if there's anything you want just call back you know i'm always here
1: i will i i will i i appreciate that as well and again okay. thank you in, in, enjoy your very well learned retirement thank you bye all right take care bye now bye all right, folks, so we just heard from retired chief of detectives for New York City, Joseph Borelli, lead detective uh, in the Son of Sam investigations. Um, so if you saw that Netflix thing and you got wrapped up in the Terry Mori thing or Maury Terry, I, I keep forgetting which is his first and last name, you know, that was sort of poo-pooed and, and fell apart. And while we certainly sympathize with Mrs. Moskowitz, I'm not even sure if she's still with us. Um Apparently, there really was nothing to the, you know, the amount of time it, it could take him to get from one place to another. Uh, and I think maybe she just bought into there being something bigger afoot. Because uh, it's always always easier to believe in something bigger than just one guy acting alone. I'm, I'm not really sure why, but that just, just seems to be our nature, that there's got to be something bigger afoot than, than something random terrible happened. Um, but, you know, uh, his career is... Well known, well documented. He's uh, been through the wars in New York, which to an extent is sort of like a uh, microcosm of uh, of America. So again, we thank him for his time, and hopefully you enjoyed this uh, interview, which I consider to be fairly unique, where you get an hour and fifteen minutes with uh, Chief Borelli. So hope you enjoyed it. Um, and we will see you next time for probably the most varied content in podcast world, The Garden of Doom.
0: half-dead walking on the sidewalk harder than a match, yeah. But tonight it's a different world. Go out and find a girl. Come on, come on, you all night. all right. Despite the heat, it'll be all right. And babe, don't you know it's a pity the days? Can't be like the nights in the summer in the city. Summer in the city.